Now, although the history of Hangul goes back to King Sejong and the early Joseon dynasty, it wasn't until Japanese colonial rule that Hangul Day was first designated by a group of nationalists, uh, the Korean Language Society to be precise. Originally, the day used to be called Kakya Day, after the first sound of consonant and vowels of the Korean alphabet. Um, despite much suppression and, and crackdown by the Japanese to make the Korean language obsolete, Many writers here express nostalgia and intellectual confusion and frustration about the time. Let's bring in Professor Janet Poole from the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Toronto, author of When the Future Disappears, the Modernist Imagination in Late Colonial Korea. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us a bit more, first of all, about your own interests in, in studying Korean. Um, Well, my own interest began back when I was an undergraduate student um, at the University of London, and I was actually studying Japanese at first, Um, but it was the late 1980s, and it was the time when Korea was in the news because of a lot of um, demonstrations and a lot of state violence, and I was just curious about um, what else was going on in Korea, you know, what were we not hearing about or seeing in the news? that was happening in Korea. And because I've always been a great reader of literature, I just love reading novels. So it it was kind of natural for me to try to learn Korean and start reading Korean literature. But you've got to the point where you've been able to translate Mm -hmm. works from many of the writers of that colonial era. Um, So when doing so, what's been the most challenging part? I think the most challenging part is um, what's always most challenging when you're doing literary translation is dealing with the kind of non-standard uses of language. So, for example, in the colonial period, especially in the 1930s, there was a big focus on dialect and different regional forms of of Korean. And that's very hard to translate because you have to make the decision whether to just translate it into neutral standard English or try to somehow suggest the presence of that dialect, which obviously doesn't have its equivalent in English. So that's kind of an impossible situation, unfortunately. Mm. So that's definitely one of the the hardest ones for me still is the use of dialect. Other kind of difficult things, there can be very specific cultural references, um, you know, references to food and clothing or or kind of... um, cultural facts that a Korean language reader would be familiar with that you have to kind of somehow slip into the English. Those can be difficult, but but I think there are ways around that. So I would say that the coping with dialect and dialogue is by far the most difficult for me anyway. Is there any particular other reason that, that drew you to colonial period literature? I think there's several reasons. First of all, I did begin by learning Japanese, and then I learned Korean. So it seemed a kind of natural progression for me when I was reading to focus in on a period when both the Japanese and Korean languages were important to writers in Korea. Um, So I I had the kind of background that, that enabled me to read colonial literature. I have a kind of affinity with literature from the colonial period. It tends to deal with... Um, I think it deals with very kind of serious issues of colonialism, of fascism, of occupation. And I'm really just fascinated by the way in which literature in particular, or writers, can actually approach those larger questions 
through literature, it may be in a more interesting way than, for example, a historian or, or a journalist or someone who's writing directly about those political issues. So in that sense, I find colonial period literature very kind of literary in the way it, it indirectly approaches everyday life, I would say. And the use of, of Korean language and Hangul in particular, they would have been statements in themselves of, of national identity. In your book, When the Future Disappears, you said that if they chose not to adopt the imperial language, um, they were challenged to use a language rapidly becoming minor to describe the complexities of a society in which the very medium of description was under threat of becoming obsolete. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the challenges these writers faced and, and had to overcome? Right. Well, I think as the colonial period was going on, and especially after the Pacific War broke out in 1941, there was a real reduction in print space, and especially in print space for Korean language literature. So whereas in the 1930s, um, writers could publish books, um, they could publish in journals, in newspapers, in the Korean language, those venues for publication became fewer and fewer, so they were really faced with the choice of would they write in Japanese and have a wider audience, or would they write in a language where they would have a kind of decreasing audience. Um, and they also felt that if they wrote in Japanese, they potentially had the option to be translated, say, into other languages. Um, at the time, Esperanto and English were really <laughs> were targets. Um, so by writing in Korean, they felt that they would not be translated. So I guess what I was thinking about was what does it mean to write in a language that is harder and harder to publish and has a smaller audience, but yet it's still important to to you as a writer to write in that language. So so what's the mean you know, it's the meaning in writing to have a as many people as possible read what you write, or is there some other meaning in in your act of writing? And and that's what I was trying to to think about. Why would you, you know, actively choose given the fact that you were fluent in, say, Japanese or a different language, why would you actively choose to write in a language that had a smaller audience? Now, when I go to a bookstore, the um, mm-hmm. Korean literature of that period that's available in English, obviously there might be a practical reason for this, but I'm curious for your explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often shorter stories uh, or short novels, Yes. Is that explained by the fact of the difficulty of translation, or is there another factor that explains why shorter stories were more popular then? Um, well, I think at the time, and, and still today to some extent, but definitely in colonial, in the colonial era, writing the short story was kind of perceived to be the highest form of literature, if you like. It was the major form, and maybe that's because writers were predominantly um, publishing in journals first. They would then later collect these short stories into single book collections. But the, their kind of prestige and status as a writer was, um, was earned through writing short fiction, whereas long fiction was considered to be popular, right? And because it was popular, it was somehow lower in status. Um, 
which is like the polar opposite of the English language publishing market today, right? Mm. Because today, in English language, publishers want novels. They don't want short stories. Um, there's a few examples, uh, exceptions, like Alice Munro has risen to a very, you know, has been absolutely lauded for her short stories. But on the whole, people want long novels. In the colonial era, that wasn't the case. And I think also... Um, there are ways in which writing in the short form... So in the colonial period, not only were there lots of short stories, there were also anecdotal essays, kind of small cont. There was a whole variety... And poetry, too, was a very serious and, and genre. Um, and these very short, fragmented forms, they all had a higher status in, in many ways than writing a long novel. And I think that also kind of ultimately speaks to a colonial situation where it's actually hard to write a long novel if if we understand that a long novel if we understand by a long novel the desire to kind of explain a whole society or a whole structure of, be, of being and existence um then if you're under a colo- under colonial rule or colonial occupation there are many aspects of that whole being or whole world that you're really not allowed to describe or talk about, right, because it's too political. So it makes sense to me that as a writer in, in that society, in some ways choosing to write poetry or choosing to write short fiction um, is also a strategic way to to suggest ideas without having to describe them at great length or, or in their full complexity. So I think it's a combination of the kind of historical way in which short fiction was so highly valorized and then the kind of real historical situation whereby writing a long novel was actually difficult. Mm. Well, you may well have inspired a few of us to go out and check out some more Korean literature, maybe translated by yourself. Thank you so much for joining us today on the line. Okay, thank you. What a nice way to celebrate Hangul Day with Professor Janet Poole of the University of Toronto.